So we'll have a look at a couple of these suttas on mindfulness. This is in your section called The Play and the Satipatthana Sutta. Look at that. And also, this afternoon if we get time, look at the one on the cook. So I'm not going to go through the Satipatthana Sutta word by word. It's quite a, a lengthy chunk of text, but just to point out some salient features to that. One, this very, um, it's obviously a very categorical thing, it's about classifying, about establishing. So this is where uh, Ajahn Tanisaro's frames of reference is a um, useful thing to bear in mind. It's setting up particular templates that we can, of how we can um, put our experience under a scrutiny. So, so bodily experience, um, sense of being embodied, and the feeling of being affected, the feeling, sense, feeling and perception, sense of being affected, the um, way that how the, how the mind is affected, what the mind is like when it's being affected, and then the various phenomena that are pertinent to liberation, and then also brought into mind. You see, so this way is just kind of bundling up experience, because as I was saying earlier, there's many, many things that we could be bearing in mind. A birthday, a dental appointment, um, whether the car needs fixing, um, you know, all these the things that could be there, we're kind of storing them somewhere in the mind and they're being carried along, you know, all these various, then we could have uh, kind of a concern about our weight or our health, that's somewhere that's there. And the, the Buddha is just trying to clarify and simplify the whole predict, whole position, whole experience with the overriding aim that all of this experience which uh, as it moves and shifts around in in random and in um, um, discursive ways shaping us giving us a sense of self becoming us when it's broken up into distinct categories it's seen not as self but as uh, objects phenomena so when we are thinking about our body, how the he- health, the size, the weight, the shape, the age, so forth, what we're going to dress, what we're going to wear, all that kind of moving around with the in- interpretations and feelings and perceptions and nuances, all that gives rise to the sense this body is mine, myself, what's mine, you know, all that kind of hovers over it. If you look at it, so you just hold it clearly. You're not doing anything, you know, about the body, but just holding it very clearly. So, okay, this bit, the body bit. Now, what actually is this? How do you experience this? You experience it in a range of ways. There are several ways that it is described here, breathing in and out, um, in terms of <coughs> postures and, and bodily parts, elements, and so forth. But 
whatever way you when you put it under scrutiny you realize this is just a body yeah it's not a self it's something we can we can focus on it's the body doing what bodies do and they are uh, they're all just doing the same thing fundamentally <laughs> yeah so it so it takes away the self you know sense around it and that's the case with all of them all of the, the all this these four categories by holding them clearly not by adding any kind of opinion about it but just holding it very clearly and seeing it clearly as you experience it so it's just this it's this it's this body all bodies are about like this this is feeling all feelings are like this I don't think anybody has any more than three kinds of feeling pleasant, painful, neutral anybody got another one? (laughs) (laughs) so so and uh, mind states, so he gives a rough list of the kind of mind states that, that minds go through. This is what minds do. They get affected. They get affected by uh, love and hate. They get affected by um, compassion and anger. They get uh, constricted, tight. They get expansive. They get elated. They, they experience senses of release. This is just the mind doing its thing. This is what minds do. Yeah, around this mind, there can be a very strong feeling of this is my mind, my mind is a mess. Why is my mind like this? How can I make my mind like that? So it's very, uh, when you look at it clearly, then that particular overriding whisper doesn't have to happen. Just, this is the mind. Like that. So that's, that's the point of it, is to place these down. Even things such as our quality of our energy or our mindfulness or our hindrances are seen in the same way yeah. that, that's the that's the that's the overriding message there these are phenomena not self none of these is something to be held on to and but then the whole um, sense of non-attachment isn't a discarding, it's not we are saying, oh now there's that body, now let go of it, get rid of it, I'm not this, but just by seeing it clearly, that is non-attachment. That will re- <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't have to add some other sort of pushing away to you stop being attached to it. By, by seeing as it is, that seeing as it is, is already, you know, not non-attachment. Now you might see it as it is, and you might see that sense of attachment happening. The grasping, the worrying, the anxiety. Well, that's a mind object. That's a mental phenomenon. That too is something we're seen as it is. Is just that. And that's 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 the that's the method. Well, that's that's the analysis. And of course, you know, I'm sure you know, I'm sure we all can see it clearly as a theory and practice is another thing. But um, <laughs> we'll get to that later. There are a series of um, repeated formulae. One of them is, is internal, external, and internal and external. So, uh, and this can be, uh, we were talking about it this morning, so there's a range of, of interpretations of that. One way of looking at it would be internally, uh, you know, this is the body, this one, 
when I go in, when I close my eyes, you know, that body experience, when I close my eyes, it's something I'm not looking at from the outside, I'm right in there with it, internally, externally, this is what I look outside and I see these other bodies. So when I see one of these things, then I, uh, you know, it's like that, it's an object. When I go inside, I experience these things, could be warmth, could be the elements internally, still phenomenon, and we begin to recognize that the, the visual experience of a body is different from the tactile experience of a body. Yeah, and what you see is one thing, that's particular shape, size, whatever that does to you. And then when you go inside or close your eyes, I don't see any arms and legs here. I don't see a t-shirt, I don't see hair. I don't see, I just see, I get feeling of pressure, warmth, movement. So which is the real body? <laughs> yeah. Whatever it is, a body is just something arising in awareness. And it changes. So the body could be uh, big, small, it could be male, it could be female, it could be fire, it could be water, it could be a source of attraction or aversion. What is it? It's a, it's a form, it's a rupa. It's a form, just a manifesting in awareness. Internally and, and externally, we get a comparative sense, perhaps, and uh, this does remind us that the mind is fundamentally relational. That is, you look at, so one of these exercises, you look at a dead body, you look at this decaying body, and um, there's some sense of, oh, yeah, right, that's going to happen to me. You know, there's a kind of resonance, an empathy, a sense of shared shared quality to it. That's what the mind does. It's not mindfulness. Mindfulness just brings you to into that bearing it in mind. But the quality of what you, when you bear something in mind, you get this sense of, well, how am I with that? How is that affecting me? Because the mind is fundamentally effective. Whenever we bear something in mind, we get affected by it. Right. So when you're looking at a dead body, then there's some sense of you know why 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 is it recommended to look at a dead body? Um, because when you place your mind there, the mind goes oh, that dead body, this body, get the message. <laughs> you know, ah, oh, right. <laughs> Don't have to worry getting about being a great, getting grey hair because that's where it all goes. So we just let the mind do that. And if you've ever been uh, to uh, funerals, autopsies, or seen dead bodies, sat with them, oh, you don't have to say anything, but it's you know, something, you definitely feel something happen, sobering effect. Some sense of, you know, you know, this is just that, isn't it? all this bones and meat and so forth. There it is. Where's the self in that? So take take some of the the drama out of it. The other expression that's used constantly is contemplating. This word anupasi. Pasi, it means to see. And anu means to see in the company of or together with. So it means um, 
contemplating means you, you, you are kind of bearing something in mind, you're witnessing it, and you are relating to it, you're seeing things. A lot. This anu suffix means in the presence of, or together with, or through the lens of, something like that. Mm. That, that phrase is used. So this is where we, the vipassana has got the same, same root. So essentially this contemplating is, a, is an insight exercise, you know, directly seeing, uh, you contemplate um, the body as a body. Insight or vipassana uh, is essentially anything that um, gives you a, a greater understanding of what is the nature of something, what is, the na- what is its nature, what is it, how is it compounded. Whereas the samatha question is, how do I make the mind, how do I make things still and steady? So it's, it's a calming, grounding exercise. Vipassana is, what this thing that I'm contemplating, what's it made up of? Where, how does it arise? What's it compounded of? Mm-hmm. So when we contemplate, we're doing something like that. Look at this, well, what's that about? You know? um, it's, a, it's something that's, we're investigating. Mm. And in this phrase, contemplating the body as a body, um, and that this means that instead of contemplating the body as, you know, my body or Aunt Sally or lovely body or ugly body, we just uh, this is a body in its own terms, rather than through some lens of our interpretations, our mind's interpretations of it, or emotional interpretation of it. This is a body seen in its own terms. Body in its own terms breathes in and out, is compounded of flesh and marrow, blood, guts and so forth. It's of the nature to break up and pass away. That's, that's what bodies do. There's no su- uh, subjective tint on that one. There's no options on it either, really. <laughs> So all that is to, to loosen the sense of selfhood that, that can be added to a body. Yeah. And because it's so normal to add it, we assume it's there. You know, you get a photograph and it's, oh, that's Joseph or Jacqueline or somebody. You know, isn't this, it's just a body. <laughs> but the, the interpretation is so immediate. That's what we are kind of um, conditioned into. Arising and passing, so we sense uh, the experience of embodiment. You know, maybe you're thinking of something, your mind is somewhere else, and then sit still and you get a sense of the experience of it. body comes in. The sense of the pressures, the weight, the warmth comes in. And all these phenomena that we experience in the body continually moving, shifting. So the pressures, the flushes, the tingles, the pangs, the throbs, the breathing in and out, rising and passing. And the idea is you, of the various contemplations, internally, externally or both, arising, vanishing, passing away, or else the, th- the third kind is mindfulness that there is a body is simply established. 
This is called um, atamayata, which means you don't add anything to it. Atamayata, one T, two M's, atamayata, um, means not making anything. So it's just, there's a body. There's no good, bad, it's just body. <laughs> you know, the mind, instead of adding all its, uh, its nuances and interpretations and perceptions, positive or negative, just sees it as it is. So the mind's signifying and perceptions uh, calm down. Just for the ne- necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness, just so that one is alert, attentive. We're not looking at something else, we're there and we're recogni- allowing the mind to deconstruct. So if you hold mindfulness on this object with this insightful attitude, what's this about? What's it made of? How's it come about? What is it as a thing? Then what happens is that gradually all the mind's um, interpretations start to deconstruct. Yeah, they kind of like, they, it just unravels, the mind unravels. It's not good, bad, it's just this, you know, so the mind just stops saying things about it. And that silence of the mind is one of the um, main aims of Buddhist practice. The mind without designations, liberated from concocting liberated from making something, making yourself out of things, or Nibbana, in fact, you know, which is a generally considered a good idea. Same thing with feelings, and um, pleasure, pain, neutral, mental and physical. So, of course, this is uh, you see there's a, a sequence of running through body to feelings. Body helps, you, helps the mindfulness to become calmed and steadied. So we begin the process with breathing in and out as a, a steadying, calming, one that allows awareness to open up and be full because breathing is safe. Nobody's yeah. ever so it's our life force so we can open up to that and therefore when the mind becomes more open more receptive more fully aware then we're able and steadied then we're able to do this work on experiences that are more evocative even than the body and feeling is one of the most evocative experiences we have isn't it you know where the pain goes there run I where the pleasure goes, there I chase it. Where the pain goes, I get I get moving. <laughs> it doesn't. It's a very simple system. Isn't it? There's no, no negotiation around that. It's where it hurts. You want to get away from it. And so this is a very evocative experience. So you need quite a bit of, you know, grounding and ballast to be able to see that. Just as there's there's feeling doing its thing. Feeling is just doing its feeling thing, running through as an energy. We talked a little bit about that the other day in terms of uh, working with pain in meditation. You you want to try to get as objective as possible, try to scrutinize it as a phenomenon, define it, label it, um, you know, 
so that instead of that, the mind's emotional, affective sense shrinking or contracting or struggling, the mind's object-forming sense, manas, just keeps describing it. It's this, it's this. So it helps to, in a way, mute the emotional message. And, I mean, of course, in practice, you've got to always recognize, uh, you know, when is pain something that you should respond to because it's a sign of damage? And when is it something that's worthwhile spending a bit more time with to develop uh, dispassion and strengthen the mind? Contemplation of mind as mind. Mind affected by lust as the mind affected by lust. Just and and the mind unaffected by lust is the mind unaffected by lust. So, so again, this is very phenomenological. It's just this is like this. This is what minds do. What does it feel like when the mind is affected by lust? Kind of flaring, um, trembling, hot, reaching out, grabbing. Contemplate it. As, as as that's that, it's not myself, and it it doesn't have to have any rationale. Lust is a pretty irrational experience, <coughs> uh, but we so. But then, you just by by contemplating <coughs> as it is, there is dispassion. This increasing sense of dispassion, because it's just that. So the the aim of this is to is to remove the object the topic you know, of one's lust or hatred and just <coughs> study the phenomenon itself. So instead of keep triggering it by referring to a lust arousing object, you just start referring to the quality itself. This is important because, um, you know, uh, uh, if we don't, then lust can seem like a pleasant experience, an enjoyable experience. Yeah. I'm about to have wonderful, rapturous experience, you know, and it's exciting. But if you just refer to itself, you think, "Wow, this is really a lot of suffering." This, because <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's so agitated and uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah. So, so the, it, you know, the frame of reference helps to contemplate the phenomenon <coughs> as a phenomenon, what it's doing to your mind. Is your mind spacious, comfortable, peaceful? No. And so then you, you're prepared when you see that to let go, to put aside the lust arousing objects or the hate arousing objects in order to just steady the mind itself. See the mind itself. So you start to guard and protect your mind, realizing its nature is to be affected. Oh, he goes through all the, the range of these, mm, from of obvious, uh, I might say, sensual effects to um, delusion, and then contracted mind. It's when the mind is is uh, tight, restrictive, um, tense, or the undistracted mind when it's jumping this way and that way. These are negative effects. The exalted mind, uplifted, exhilarated, unexalted, surpassed, unsurpassed, concentrated, non-concentrated, liberated mind is a liberated mind, 
an unliberated mind as unliberated mind. By this liberated mind doesn't mean um, nibbana; it means a mind that is at least, you know, temporarily you might say the mind is free from the five hindrances. So, oh, you know, okay, you know, that's the mind is now free from the five hindrances. So instead of making, oh, now I'm one of those, I must be a something or the other because my mind is liberated from the five hindrances. So you make a big self, big deal out of it. Say, no, this is just the mind when it's free from the five hindrances is like this. This is the mind when it's liberated from hatred. It's like this. And uh, so, you know, so that we are di- more dispassionate towards any of these uh, phenomena, these appearances. So it helps us to remember that, um, you know, the, the, the aim of insight is um, detachment, dispassion, so ceasing and relinquishment. And this refers to the sankharas, the, the, the things that we make out of experience. So if the mind feels free, we get, oh, wonderful, I am now one of these. Uh, so we concoct, we make a self out of it. Dispassion is just, okay, the mind is liberated from five hindrances. Uh-huh. This is what it's like. Mm. So there isn't a thing called Nibbana that we can get, but there's the Nibbaning really refers to the quelling of all that agitation the non-making anything out of, out of whatever the mind is about. Relinquishing the sense of self, the standpoint in, in any phenomenon by seeing it as it is. Mind objects, hindrances, enlightenment factors. So it's, it's, it's interesting how these are just stacked up like two football teams there's the five hindrances, one side, the seven enlightenment factors on the other side. <laughs> you know, it's the, the runners and riders, five aggregates. So they do, all these are dhammas, and dhammas, mind objects, well, the word dhamma is, is a very broad term. It can mean any, any phenomenon at all. But you can see here, he's not really referring to any phenomenon, but phenomena that are pertinent and relevant to liberation. So there's a list of the, of the ways that the Buddha shaped up experience into these categories because he felt this was the most useful way you could, come, you could get a grasp on things in order to, to for realization. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a matrix, it's a kind of um, structure for practice. Yeah. Can I ask you something? Yes. In terms of the um, order <coughs> of the foundations, you said body comes, or body does come first here, and that's because it was more grounding. Um, I mean, to some extent, you could also argue that rather than it being unilinear, you could go into it at any point because, in some ways, mind states are grosser and might be much more inclined to strike you with um, force, whereas a bodily state could be very subtle. It would seem to me that the order um, is as much to do with the complexity of analysis as it, as it proves more material 
there's a lot more gradations when you come to the fore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So rather than being sequential, it's more just um, for, the, for the sake of the categorization, you know, that you start with something that's fairly simple to categorize, so you get the general sense of how things are classified, and you get into more complex areas. So it's not necessarily a map of practice, but a map of the analysis. Yeah. But, but it's also a suitor to be chanted, isn't it? All of them are, yeah. So it actually enables it to be learned. Mm-hmm. And the formula of the chance will be acquired, and then it mm-hmm. gets into the more complex analysis later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, could be. Yeah, I'll buy that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you're wrong. <laughs> Good. <laughs> jump to the last one where you're uh, sensitive to dispassion and fading away and uh, uh, freedom itself that's that's I find that more difficult more refined refined. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in that sense I find the the order quite useful although I also see there's a kind of a, a kind of holographic thing going on inside of it Almost a thing going on inside of it. Is it, um, is it truth has one flavour, like the taste of it? You know, when you go to a meditation session, your first day of meditation, they don't say, well, contemplate the five indriyas. They say, sit down, get your, posi- get your physical position, try breathing in and out. You know, so you don't start off with you know, the difference between rapture and sukha. <laughs> So it may be that, uh, uh, you know, I think whatever, whatever works really, but I could see that uh, as, a, as a sense of where you start, I guess, cl- you know, if you're deliberately starting to meditate, you know, doing med- formal meditation, you start with how to sit still. That's lesson one, isn't it, really? How to get your knees to come down and <laughs> you get your body. And then within that, you get the, Within that body experience, you get the various feelings and hindrances and arise within it. I like to think of it as Russian dolls, you know, one's inside the other, and the body's the, the big one, and you've got the other stacked inside it. That's my little picture of it, but I, but I don't really hang on to those particular pictures, so whatever works. I mean, it can be the case that one is, in fact, you know, dealing with a huge amount of rage. So before getting into mindfulness of the body, I have to look at how do I handle how do I handle rage or frustration. I can't do this breathing in and out because I'm just too heated up. So I've got to deal with mind objects, you know. So you can see it that way: how to deal with tension or frustration. Where sometimes if you get too, you know, trying to get it down into your body, um, you, you know, you, you can't get there because your mind is too keyed up. So you could do something like 
chanting, loving kindness, you know, to just get your mind to relax enough to get into the body. So it, it could go either way, but uh, yeah. It's also a teaching for bhikkhus, isn't it? It's not such directly towards lay people in the 21st century pushing a trolley around Tesco, is it? Uh, well, <laughs> it was for people who basically that was their job was meditating, you know, going to roots of trees and sitting, learning to sit upright. And you don't see charnel grounds in Tesco's either, do you? <laughs> Pushing a trolley around a charnel ground. I <laughs> guess you could open up the freezer and look at the. <laughs> neck of lamb. <laughs> mm. We could probably, you know, keep coming back to that. But there's one more piece I particularly want to to draw your attention to because it's the one on the cook Suda Sutta, which follows follows on from this. I hope. Yeah. And we might look at those. So there are a couple others which are very similar or got similar phrases to the Satipatthana, which we might look at, look at later. But I thought I'd just touch into this one. Because this is a nice... This is, this is not in that uh, such that categorical way. It's this more... Uh, analogical thing with a uh, you know, little story and sometimes, sometimes the te- Buddha teaches in these lists of things and sometimes he teaches by using a story so this is an another way of teaching and they have their and sometimes you, you get something in the story you didn't get in the in the analysis the analytical teaching so this is the case of the cook and we have the uns- foolish, inexperienced, unskillful cook presents a king or a king's minister with various kinds of curry. He doesn't take note of his master. He doesn't take note whether his master likes the curry or reaches out for that curry or takes a lot of this curry or praises that curry. Because he doesn't check out when he puts the food down, he doesn't check out which bits the king likes to eat. He just says, "Here's your food," and then he doesn't observe what the what the king is eating. So, as a result of this, the king gives him the sack, basically, not reward with clothes or wages or gifts, because he doesn't get the point of what his master likes. He still keeps serving the same old curry, without recognizing his master never eats it, or, <laughs> or he likes this particular bit but leaves the rest of it. And he says, this is the case where a foolish, inexperienced, unskillful monk remains focused on the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful. So, wow, you know, this is foolish, inexperienced, unskillful. He's still ardent, alert, and mindful, which is the three, the three um, factors that go together in the Satipatthana. Ardent, atapi, which means you're keen, you're, you're interested, you're motivated, alert, you have... Alert is Tanisaro's translation of Sampajanya, 
full awareness. He calls it alert. So have you liked whatever works for you? You know, you're really with that. You're taking it all in and you're mindful. You're staying steady. So this foolish monk who's still got these three qualities, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world, remains focused on the body in and of itself. His mind does not become concentrated. His defilements are not abandoned. He does, ta- he does not take note of that fact. So he keeps remains focused on feelings, mind, mental qualities and so forth. His mind doesn't become concentrated. So he's not rewarded with a pleasant abiding here and now, nor with mindfulness and alertness. Why is that? Because the foolish, inexperienced, unskillful monk does not take note of his own mind. So essentially what he's doing, he's, he's, you know, he's, got, he's read the books, he's heard the teachings, so he's doing it by the letter. He's not really noticing whether his mind attunes, picks things up, whether it is able to do mindfulness of breathing or how it, how it operates in terms of feeling. So he doesn't really learn. He just goes through the, oh, this is the system, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. He doesn't notice it's not actually working. <laughs> so, so he's got the letter, but he's not really getting the message that his mind is giving him. Yeah. And then he gives the case of the experienced, wise, skillful cook who's presented a king or a king's minister with various kinds of curry. He does take note of his master, thinking, today my master likes this curry, or reaches out for that curry, or takes a lot of this curry, or praises that curry. Today he likes mainly sour curry, mainly bitter curry, peppery, sweet, alkaline, and so forth. So he checks out what are the kind of things his master really likes, his master feels pleased by. You know, over a period of time, he gets to know his master's tastes in various kinds of curries. So he, he looks at that, and he starts to fine-tune his menus. So more and more often, he's putting the food down that his master likes, because he's, he's checked out and he's adjusted his menus to keep hitting the, the positive buttons. Because of this, his master rewards him, promotes him, makes him head cook, gives him clothing, wages and gifts, because he picks up on the theme of his master. In the same way a wise, experienced, skillful monk remains focused on the body, so forth, alert and mindful, putting aside grief. So he's still doing the same thing, but he's checking out, how does my mind respond to this over a period of time? Not one shot, but keep doing it, going to the system again and again. What are the bits where it really starts to work for me? What are the bits that it's, it's not picking up at all? You know? The bits where it starts to work, I'll do more of that. I'll do more of that. Yeah. So this is the, I think, really lovely uh, encouragement for, for personal um, skill, developing your own skill, developing your own wisdom. Now, when we have Sampajanya, I've said that one of our um, fundamental um, themes for being heedful and being alert is to keep referring things to awareness. I use that phrase. It means you, you experience something, well, how am I with that? Hmm. How's that affecting me? Hmm. So we, with Sampajanya, you refer it to awareness. You refer it to awareness, how that is. So that's, you might say, 
first step hold it get it you know really get a hold of it what that uh, what that theme is that mental object that thing you want to meditate on really get it get it clear refer to it with awareness refer how it what it how it affects your mind what happens is it calming you know what's it about are you attracted are you averse is it bringing up hindrances and so forth and then then <laughs> you know having referred it to your mind it's like now you are the cook you put the food down on the table now watch <laughs> carefully as to what your mind really does rather than oh here we go again. here's another one you know here's another one here's another one keep referring you learn what why is your mind calmed where is it clarified where is it more more a little more happy a little more peaceful incrementally you start picking it up you know. and then where where you're feeling more comfortable more settled more confident when you're getting that theme coming up then you listen into that and say that's what you want to put on the menu <laughs> you know i do mindfulness of breathing best when i'm focused in my chest rather than my belly or my nose or i don't do it at all i just sit here and stay focused on the f sensations of the body that works so i feel comfortable and steady in that or at this time when i'm in this particular state what works best for me is just to be open and aware with a mind of spaciousness and kindness mm -hmm. that works best for me so you know the f the, the first uh, sutta satipatthana looking at things very much objectively the analysis not self you know no this is self second one we're dealing much more from a subjective uh, perspective may not be self but each of us has slightly different <laughs> uh, uh, different um, affinities not self you could call it uh, karma or vipaka it's not a person but we all have slightly different uh, sensitivities, uh, affinities, uh, numbs, numb patches, places where we get really peaceful or opposite. So with this, you're, you're understanding the specificity, specificity, the specific nature of your own wisdom faculty without making a person out of it. Mm. You know, those responses, so so this kind of helps us to you know avoid making not self into a kind of an, an anesthetic which wipes out or attempts to wipe out the specific quality of way this mind is operating and you want to tune into that you want to know what works for me even if there's no self there's still a specific um, configuration of, of affinities and weak spots and strong spots mm. you want to know that so this is this in a and one of the themes of uh, long-term Dharma practice it takes generally depends, five six seven years or so before you really know your mind yeah sometimes longer because a lot of the time we've got why isn't my mind doing what it should be? 
it says this in the book, my mind isn't, I've got to try and make my mind like his mind, like her mind. Why is my mind doing, you know, or, or we have an idea about our mind, what our mind is like. But you don't really know it. You don't know who you're living with. Because <laughs> you all you know is it's not the way it should be. And it takes time to get down to the fact that well, it's not the way it should be, it's, but it's the way it is. Uh, and I, I've got to, I can only respond and work with this one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so you start, this is where we have this sense of uh, uh, that, that inquiry and, and discovery and really fine-tuning our practice to sensitive response to the mind as it is through, through wisdom, not through opinionatedness, but through referring to awareness. Mm. This is without this, you're not going to get, you're not going to grow. Yeah. You're just trying to do something, an off-the-peg model, it's not going to work. It's got to be tailored. So, you know, actually referring things to awareness. Now, normally when we refer to things, we, we, we think something, or we get an emotional response. Oh, I don't like much of that. I don't understand what, what, what that. You know, that's not it. No, that's not, that's not awareness speaking. That's just, that's more Sankara's reacting. So taking it to awareness is taking it to the place where you really are open, you don't have an idea, you don't know. You know, you're not even trying to know, you're just sensitizing. So this is why it takes time, because it's, n- it's not verbal. It's not a verbal experience, it's this felt sense of you know, minor shifting or sliding. You know, it's not picking it up. So you get tuned into the mind as a, almost like an energy body that you can feel it rise up, warmed, retracting, contracted, inspired, you know, responsive, sullen, withdrawn, hardened, you know, shut down, stubborn. This is this is the one you want. You're trying to talk to it. What? What actually? Give me a sign. What? What do you like? You know. <laughs> So this is, I think this is really, um, makes all the spiritual life very interesting, a real inquiry, uh, rather than just um, going through the motions. It's not, it's not, it's not a technical matter, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a matter of deep, deep inquiry into our subjectivity. Even though it's not self, it's still subjective. Okay, so, anything to say on that? Yeah, I mean, it's not endless what I'm going to say, but I mean, what you just said there is just really, that is really the most important thing I've heard actually over the last few days. For me, that's just run, that's resonated so much. Good, the cook finally served up something useful. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, with respect. <laughs> well, it's fe- better one than nothing. <laughs> well, I'm fairly, I mean, I'm fairly sort of, well, I mean, I'm very new to this game. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Way in. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, I mean, it's very easy, you know, to read books, to take yeah, yeah, things, yeah. and this time I'm just not going to do it. I'm just going to try and 
Good, good. That's lovely, yeah. Well, that's, that's great. Cause it's, it's not easy. I'm finding it very difficult. Yeah, yeah. Some of the things are not working. They're not working. Mm-hmm. But then something does work, and you think, well, that's going against what maybe what I should be doing, but I've got to go with that. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's generally about 70, 80% stuff doesn't work any given time. <laughs> It's like, you know, you, you kind of got a bag full of seeds and you're throwing them out the, the, to the chickens and there's one of those seeds is going to go down something's throat sooner or later, but you, you can't really predict. So you just got to throw lots and lots of seeds around until something hits the mark. So we don't have to do all everything that's in the scriptures, but there's something in there that's going to work for you at some time. This, maybe that's the bit that's going to work this time around. And it has to have the tools, be intuitive. Uh-huh. Last few days, it's having the tools for us to be intuitive towards how we're feeling, situations, circumstances. It's having the trust, I think, isn't it? Also, the tools is to be able to hold steady and look clearly, and the trust is to really realize you've got to trust what happens, which is always we don't know what the next moment's going to bring up. That's what we've got to. That's what we. That's where we're really dharma faring is faring on the back of the moment as it arises, <laughs> which we don't quite know yet. And the rest of it is just the harness, the stirrups, the reins, and all that. But this is the horse. Yeah. Um, I want to <coughs> ask something related to the this point of investigation or inquiry. <coughs> And uh, suppose that the awareness is based, is quite steady at that moment, isn't it? Uh, when you begin to observe phenomena. Um, at that point, uh, what is the advice about the phenomena? It's, um, is it something that we let come in, like, uh, and observe arising and passing, such as we read in some books? Or is structure as an exercise like the Satipatthana suggests somehow going through the body, feeling and so on? Is it structure? No. Is something that we need to pick up or just pick up because at that moment we want to investigate or we find, we found at that moment in our mind? The question is structure or non-structure from that point of Yeah, well, structure is a, is a frame, frame of reference, is useful, but we, uh, you realize you don't want to keep studying the frame. The frame is there to make, trying to make it clear, but you don't want to get absorbed into the frame. You want to see what it's referring to, which is uh, referring things to awareness. I would say is, is essentially the, the activity that we, that we do. We've got to hold the frame steady enough to do, to aim in the right way. Now, if for example, we, you know, we're experiencing phenomena that, that our frame of reference begins to disintegrate because the phenomena are just overwhelming, then you've got to say, okay, let's back off and find another frame of reference, something where, where we can establish mindfulness. So I don't think it's entirely, it's not exactly just a matter of open house, um, because you d- it does need the requisites to be able to 
stay clear and focused and mindful. Otherwise we're not really going to get the chemistry right. Yeah? terms of it because it seems as though uh, there are presented a lot of these different kind of factors and they all seem important like attention reflection um, they all escape me now <laughs> This. Virtue, restraint. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so much emphasis is given to the word mindfulness, particularly in, in health, current, and into mindfulness based approaches in, in other contexts. But thinking just in, in Buddhist context, does it have that kind of um, prominence within Buddhist practice? Or is it something that's come about through use of languages, meditations, and things? It's become more prominent. Well, certainly, it's clearly there in the scriptures, but. Um, It's become more prominent to the point almost become almost the only thing going in Buddhism is mindfulness. Uh, partly because it attracts um, a kind of, um, you know, attracts people, attracts the mind that likes clarity and, and um, st- structures. Systems, systems and structures. It's nice and you know, clear, structured thing. And I think for many people who picked up uh, meditation practice in the East, you didn't have to take on, on board devotion, faith, virtue, restraint. It's <laughs> just mindfulness. <laughs> so, so it's kind of simple and and transferable. You, you can systematize mindfulness. You can say being mindful just means note what you br- note the breathing in, note the breathing out. There you go. It's in a nutshell. Um, yeah. You got it down to one point: present moment, notice the feeling, be be aware of the breath in the nostrils, sensations. There, there you go. There's Buddhism. It's that big. Yeah, it's portable, you can carry it around, stick it on the end of your nose. Mm. And it, it, it sort of you know, it has results, but for many people it's, it's a, lot, a lot is missed out. The heart qualities, warmth, uh, affection, um, inspiration, trust, confidence, relaxation, those things don't necessarily always come on, on board with it. Sometimes they do, almost uh, by themselves. But sometimes people get so into this one-pointed mindfulness things that they lose all these other factors. And so they, they almost um, prune it out. You know. 
as being, well, this is just side effects, you're not really concentrated. So then mindfulness becomes a, a concentration technique. And you, you know, and it feels well like the concentration, as in concentration camp, you know, it's just very regimented and technique oriented. And for, you know, it can be the case that, that e- even th- that happening, but by itself, naturally, your mind brings in the sense of inspiration and trust and warmth by itself, does it? Not by itself. Some people it doesn't. <laughs> and they need encouragement in terms of, uh, you know, uh, feeling respect for oneself, feeling calm, feeling happy. Um, you know. It's okay if, if, if your mind's in good shape to do that sort of one-pointed mindfulness. But if your mind's got things like, you know, dysfunctions like um, anxiety stuff or traumas or um, depressive or obsessive which people do have obsessive tendencies then that mindfulness thing just plays right into your obsessiveness and you've got to get it rightness and your perfectionism and people just tighten up you know tighten right up and you know have to sometimes you know do some therapy after their meditation retreat to get over it. Because <laughs> 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 you might just go, go, go so tight. That's not the idea, but, but if your mind's in good shape, it would work, but not everybody's mind is in good shape. Yeah. You know, people have all sorts of, you know, issues and problems, which in more rounded out practice such as you know kalyanamitta good friendship um, uh, loving kindness obvious ones um, devotional practice you get a sense of lifting the heart praise these things um, you know you want ideally you, you round it out and it's up to us to, to know that we write the menu we're the cooks there's all kinds of stuff up there on the shelf, not just mindfulness. You make the menu, because <laughs> you're the one that's going to eat the stuff. <laughs> you better get it right, yeah? <laughs> and if you're throwing up, then it means you didn't get it right. <laughs> okay, having said that, tomorrow when we go back into the world... <laughs> no... <laughs> I just presented this very this uh, ten seconds of heedfulness <laughs> pausing. <laughs> uh, so, because uh, of that, the, str- the stream, you know, the stream, the torrent of input and output, you know, you know, even if it's good, it's still streaming on, and we're very much dancing or sw- or swimming in that stream. So, just you know, that pause. You know, and it doesn't take you're not looking at carving out half an hour. You can do that, you should be able to do that ten times a day, I would have thought. 
but it's remembering to do it. Remembering to do it. You want to have something on your wherever you're working, something on your desk, or I think in the Tik Nak Han says they have somebody rings a mindfulness bell, which is really a heedfulness bell. Somebody goes dong, you hear the bell and you stop. Now you might have a little bleeper or something that does that. Helps just to keep the floods from you know, checked in check. At least so you know where you are, how you're feeling. Structure helps, you know. It always is always a bit of a any discipline, any structure is always a bit of a strain. But you want to work out some thing where you do get uh, a time you deliberately train, you know, stop, change gear, train yourself, change your direction towards one's your own well-being rather than getting things done or sorting the world out, which is endless. Yeah. And the other, the other thing again is Kalyanamita, spiritual friends. You can't, you know, so that some things you just can't really do on your own. You've got to have models, situations where there's some sense, even if it's not verbal, just situations with other people where you do something together and that has an effect. But certainly somebody you can talk to helps. Kalyanamita, pretty um, precious. <coughs> this is you've asked one of the big <coughs> big questions, and we'll probably come back to it again because it's a we'll look at it again tomorrow. Hmm? Now let's put them to practice some of these wonderful things we've heard. <coughs>